Our text today comes from Galatians chapter 3. Once again, pay close attention. This is God's holy word. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, it is our desire to please you with everything that we do and say and everything that we think today. And so we ask for your spirit now to guide us into truth and guide us into a response of worship that pleases you and deliver us from every error. Deliver us from everything that is not helpful. Deliver us from every distraction, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Americans are profoundly anti-ceremonial. Aristocrats and their etiquette and their rituals and their, their rigid, rigid forms of the way that they, they act in, in this courtlid behavior, that's always been a source of humor for American humorists, from Mark Twain to you know, when Bugs Bunny dressed up as a king and made fun, of, uh, made fun of the king. We're very suspicious of the ostentatious pageantry of formal functions that we see in other countries. For us, watching a royal wedding or watching a royal funeral, for example, feels like we're looking into a distant history or that we're watching a, a, an alien culture. There are gestures and rituals and words there that are all foreign to us, which obviously means something to the people who are engaged in the ceremony, but to us seem superfluous or silly or even pointless. Americans tend to be extremely informal. In fact, informality is a virtue for us. In fact, we may be one of the most informal countries on the planet. You can be wearing jeans and still be considered to be dressed up well enough to go to a fancy restaurant or to a play or, or to a symphony. Hey, you know, at least I'm not wearing sweatpants or pajama pants. I mean, I save those for grandpa's funeral. I'm, you know, I'm dressed up. I'm wearing my good jeans. Um, we're suspicious of even basic personal formalities. We treat other people with great familiarity. It's, it's nothing for younger people to address older people by their first name without being invited to. Whereas in some other countries, in some other languages, there's a whole different set of pronouns that you use for people who are your superiors in age or in status. In German, for example, you would call people who are your peers, you would use the word du for you, D-U, but for anybody uh, higher than you or older than you, you would use a completely different pronoun for you, C, S-S-I-E. So, so when it comes time for us to mark important occasions, we operate with this extreme casual mindset. The, the planning of weddings and funerals are two places where this really comes out. We assume that when it comes time to plan a wedding or a funeral, we assume that nobody's ever done this before. There's, there's no shared set of cultural expectations. We start with a blank sheet every time because we want to keep formality at arm's length. We don't wanna to be too stuffy, too formal, too rigid spontaneity, or at least the appearance of spontaneity, is assumed to be more genuine, more real. And because people usually want a pastor involved with weddings and funerals, I uh, get invited in, and I often have this conversation, 
do you wanna use words that Christians have used for centuries or are we going to make something up here on the spot? And which do you think is going to better uh, signify and capture the moment of what we're attempting to do here? Uh, and and those, those challenges are, are constant. Now, now, we could come up with a number of reasons why we are this way. There is the strong influence of the Puritans who at times overreacted against the very real dead ceremonialism of the church of England. There is our political rejection of kings and royalty and all that comes with them. And I'm thankful for the War of Independence and I'm thankful that we declared our, our independence from England. There's also this Wild West frontier mentality that's the practical result of having few people and few resources in a rural area of this massive geographic region of the Midwest and the West where there are few people spread out over a large area and you just have to make do with what you have. And so frontier churches can't have pipe organs, for example, and they can hardly have a pastor. Maybe once a month, a pastor could ride through and minister to them. All of these influences are part of our DNA as Americans, for better or worse. And like most things, there's some good there and there's some bad. But where it hurts us and where we sense this most acutely is in our shared cultural rejection of ceremony and formality. Our theology has been influenced in an anti-sacramental direction. We assume that rituals are silly and pointless and pompous, that they don't really mean anything. They aren't important. They certainly don't do anything and can't change anything significant. And so when we come to the rituals that Jesus ordains and that Jesus commands, specifically baptism and communion, we approach them with the same casual informality that we do everything else. We assume that they are empty signs. It's okay if you wanna do them, but keep them at arm's length. Don't take them too seriously because we don't want you thinking that they actually do something or that they actually mean something. If you do them, it's fine. If you don't do them, it's fine. It's all the same either way because what actually matters is what's in your heart. But is that true? Is that the way the Bible speaks about the sacraments of baptism and communion? Are they mere pictures? Are they empty signs? Is it, is it just like we're acting something out here? Or is something actually happening to the one being baptized, the one who eats at the Lord's table? We're in the middle of a Sunday morning series where we're taking up various topics and we're asking, what do we believe? And so this Sunday, we're addressing what we believe about baptism. And next Sunday, we'll explore what do we believe about the Lord's Supper. Both of these subjects could take several weeks each. There's so much Bible content on covenants and the participants in the covenants and the blessings and the expectations, the covenant seals. Um, but, but today, and we're only gonna take one Sunday to look at baptism. So I wanna focus principally on the efficacy of baptism. What does baptism do? What does it change? What does, what does God perform in baptism? What promises does he make? in baptism. And this is important for us, this is an important topic to take hold of because we are all swimming upstream in a culture and in an American church where the baseline assumption is this anti-sacramental view that ceremony is basically meaningless. 
And so when we say that baptism does something, before we even say what it does, we get this immediate response of incredulity. Baptism is thought of as something that you do. When, when you're ready to show that you're a Christian, baptism is this quaint little thing that you do. But it's not considered to be an occasion where the Lord is doing something with you or to you or in you. It's something that you do as, as a, a work of your own um, uh, volition. But, and yet, this is how the scriptures speak, that, that baptism is something that the Lord is doing with you and to you and in you. The Bible doesn't speak about baptism as if it's something that you are doing or it's a, if it's a work that you're performing. Baptism is something that you receive, and through it, God's Holy Spirit is effectively working on you through the authority of his church, through the authority of the name of the Trinity being placed on you with water. Now, just taking a few passages at face value, I want you to listen to what the scriptures say about baptism and all of the things that the scriptures join to baptism. And by the way, I'm going to make the bold assumption when the New Testament uses the word baptism, it's talking about baptism. I mean, that's a, that's a stretch, I know. That's a bold assumption. But I'm going to assume that when we read baptism, we're talking about baptism. There are all these um, gymnastics that we do with the word baptism to say, oh, that's not really, that doesn't have anything to do with water. Uh, but I think it does, and I think it can't mean anything else. Um, uh, and, then, and also when we read about sprinkling or washing with water, we, we also mean baptism. Why do the scriptures so often join water and washing and pouring and sprinkling with water. Why does the scripture so often join that with the new birth? Why does Jesus put uh, born of, of, of water and, and the word? Uh, why do we put these things two together all the time? Why do we put them together? And what damage do we do when we separate what God has joined together? And so uh, listen to what the scriptures say about what God accomplishes through baptism, what we can expect to happen in and around and with baptism. Here are just a few. First, the scriptures say we are forgiven. Uh, in Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. In Acts 22.16, Ananias said to Paul, remember Ananias was the man who met Paul after his uh, road to Damascus experience. And when um, Ananias takes him under his wing, Ananias says to Paul, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. In the Nicene Creed, on the Lord's Day, we say, we believe in one baptism for the remission of sins. And so the scriptures join forgiveness and the washing away of sins with baptism. Secondly, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2.38, once again, Peter says, be baptized and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descends on him, the Spirit fills Jesus, and then the Spirit sends Jesus out into the wilderness on his mission. So there's a, a gift of the Holy Spirit associated with baptism. Third, we are united in baptism to the crucified, buried, and risen Christ. Romans 6.3 and following. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For we have, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And again in Colossians 2.11, you have been buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised you from the dead. So twice in Romans and Colossians, the apostle Paul puts uh, our union with Christ in the, the, the act of baptism, in the sacrament of baptism. At baptism, you are joined to Christ and joined to and united with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. When does that happen? It happens at baptism. Fourth, we are joined to the body of Christ in our baptisms, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, or have been made to drink into one spirit. Our baptism is our union with the body of Christ and, uh, and with the company of the elect. Fifth, we are clothed with Christ and we become heirs to the promises made to Abraham. I just read a few minutes of Galatians uh, Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Sixth, we are justified and sanctified. 1 Corinthians 6, that's where Paul lists, he says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he lists fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals and sodomites and thieves and, and so on. And he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. And in, incidentally, the word wash there is the very same word that Ananias used when he was talking to Peter, when he said, arise, be baptized and be washed of your sins, wash your sins away, um, uh, call, calling on the name of the Lord. So uh, that, that same word that was used to Paul, Paul turns around and uses that same word in 1 Corinthians, and he says, you were washed. Uh, and, and so you're no longer like that. That was you, but that's not you anymore. And the point of transition for you was your washing. Uh, that was the point of transition for uh, the apostle Paul as well. Seventh, we are saved. Peter talks about the flood and the salvation of Noah and his family through the waters of the flood and through the ark. And then Peter takes that and he says, there's also an antitype which now saves us. So just as Noah and his family were saved uh, through the flood, there's something that saves us that also has to do with water. There is an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Eighth, we are ordained as priests with access to the heavenly sanctuary in our baptisms, Hebrews 10, 21. Since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. When do you have your bodies washed with pure, pure water? When do you become a priest? When are you ordained to the new covenant priesthood? At baptism. Ninth, we are washed, we are regenerated, we are renewed. Titus 3, 4, when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. 
Now, every one of these things that I just listed, every one of these verses requires and demands more exegesis and thought and reflection and study than, than we're able to do today. And each one of them requires us to stop and consider, okay, what does Paul mean by justification here? What does Peter mean by you, you are saved. What, what, is, what, is, what does Paul mean when he talks about the washing of regeneration? What do these words mean in these contexts? Um, but let me say clearly, and I wanna make sure everybody understands this, and I wanna make sure everybody hears me 100% clearly, none of these passages, not one of them, teach that baptism automatically guarantees eternal life. Not one of them. Uh, none of these passages teach that all baptized individuals are effectively called or will receive final justification, to use the language of the Reformed tradition. But these passages do teach collectively that God does a great work in baptism, and for those who respond in faith, their baptism is an essential part a vital part, an effective part of their salvation that God is working out on their behalf. A baptism is a part of the salvation for those whom God has elected to persevere to the end. And if you think I'm crazy, and if you think I'm mishandling the scriptures, well, here's how, here's how the Westminster Confession summarizes what the scriptures teach about baptism. Uh, Westminster, uh, the chapter on baptism says, baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. In fact, there the Westminster Confession summarizes all the, all the verses that I just read, all the verses I just gave to you, all the passages, it, it summarizes those in that very helpful statement that, that baptism is a sign and a seal of our ingrafting into Christ, of our regeneration, of our remission of sins. So it's not unbiblical, it's not unreformed uh, to say that baptism is an effective means of grace whereby God actually confers his blessing and favor through his Holy Spirit. That God acts in a salvific way through baptism, that he accomplishes his purposes, and especially in the lives of our children, our children's baptisms, their baptisms are the first outward evidence that God has begun his work in them and on them. You can point ordinarily to the moment of baptism as the moment where they are joined to Christ and all of his works, that they are brought into the household of faith, that they are discipled in the household of faith, and they are called there to a life of obedience, a life of faith, a life of repentance. Now, listen again to Westminster Confession, um, the later section on, a, on, on that same chapter of baptism. The efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment in time wherein it is administered. Yet, notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's will in his appointed time. So to 
um, unpack that a little bit. God works on the human heart in secret ways in his own time and according to the counsel of his will. And we've seen this happen. We, we know and we have friends who have this story. There are some people who were baptized into the Roman Catholic Church or maybe they're baptized into some liberal denomination as infants and then they go through a lifetime of wandering and rebellion until they come back to Christ later as adults and they experience a very real conversion at that point. Suddenly they understand the gospel and it all clicks and they repent of their sins and they trust in Christ and they understand the power of the gospel uh, and, and the power of God's word to change their life. It's, it's a real conversion but as, as the confession so clearly says, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment wherein it is administered. Um, the, the, they were baptized as infants and come to a real living uh, faith later in life, which is why we don't rebaptize. Uh, their baptism is still God's claim on them. Their baptism is still the beginning of God's work in them and on them. And we know those, those types of stories. Yet, ordinarily, as the confession says, it says it, the, the, the baptism and the, um, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time where it's administered, yet, notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace is really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Spirit. So ordinarily, under the faithful ministry of the word, we can very much expect as the confession states, that in baptism, that, that God's grace is not only offered, but really conferred by the Holy Spirit, uh, that we can trust that God is working in a salvific way toward us and to our children through his sacraments. Maybe it's helpful to think of it this way. Would anybody deny that the baptism of Jesus was efficacious? Would anybody deny that God was actually accomplishing something in the baptism of his son. Was Jesus' own baptism, was, an, was it an empty picture? Was it just a dramatic symbol? Or was the baptism of Jesus the occasion for God the Father to demonstrate the blessing of the Son, to demonstrate the identification, the mission of the Son, as well as the Son's receiving the Spirit and the Son being ordained to the work he was being called to do? See, the baptism of Jesus is a paradigm for understanding God's work in baptism. We can look to the baptism of Jesus and say, yeah, that's what God does in baptism. At his baptism, Jesus received the Spirit. He was declared to be the beloved Son of the Father at his baptism. And that's what ordinarily happens in our baptisms as well. If we are united to Christ by faith, he pours out his spirit on us and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So despite our assumption that ceremonies are empty and silly, that, that the baptisms really don't do anything, the scriptures repeatedly affirm that baptism does in fact change you. Baptism puts you in a new category before God. A baptism is when you have the name of the Trinity placed on you. You are joined to the body of Christ. You are being clothed with Christ. And the reality is, uh, we don't think about this, but the reality is that life is full of effective ceremonies and effective actions where the declarations of an authority, the acts of an authority, the words of an authority change you. 
You have a new status. You have a new position. Uh, that, that actions and words change people. When a judge strikes his gavel and says guilty, that not only describes you, that changes you. One minute, you are innocent before the court, but when the gavel bangs, your status has been transformed by this act and by the declaration of the judge, and you're not gonna convince anybody that the actions of the judge was just an empty sign, that it's just a picture, it's not real. I don't take that seriously. No, you and everybody else know that it is sobering and that it, something has actually changed there. When a minister says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, you are now someone new that you weren't before. You weren't a husband before, but now you are a husband. You weren't a wife before, but now you are a wife. You have entered into a new covenant where you are bound to another person, a person to whom you have duties, a person with whom you have privileges that you did not have five minutes before. Sexual, uh, sexual uh, intimacy, the, the night before the wedding is fornication. The night of the wedding, it is the consummation and is the renewal of the marriage covenant. We are absolutely transformed by ceremonies all the time. If you think of enlistment or uh, naturalization or oaths of office, all of these change you and we understand that and we're okay with it. But we hold baptism at arm's length and say, oh, that can't do anything. That doesn't change anything. See, when we declare boldly that baptism is efficacious, our minds run to the exceptions. Our minds run to examples in our own experience and examples from the scriptures Examples of people who were assumed to be part of the household of faith. They were assumed to be united to Christ. I mean, they were baptized, but who then fell away. They committed apostasy. They left the faith. And people in whom there is now no evidence of any kind of spiritual fruit. What do we do with that? What do we do with people who are baptized and then leave the body of Christ and then go off the rails completely and they're so obviously not faithful Christians? Well, where do we start? We begin by affirming that God from all eternity has ordained whatever comes to pass, that God has appointed his elect unto glory from the foundation of the world, that, that all of this question, all of this matter lies in the purposes and pleasures of God, a God who has not revealed everything to us. We don't have a roster of the elect. We don't have a guest list for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Sometimes that would make things a lot easier if we just had the list and we know who was, who was in and who was out. We don't have that. That's all in the hidden counsels of God's knowledge. But what we do have, what we do have is the covenant. In time, in history, we are able to tell who is a member of the covenant by baptism and by faithfulness and fruitfulness as an abiding member of the covenant. So we know on earth, in time, who is a Christian, who is baptized, who is faithful, who is fruitful. We also know in time, in history, who is not a member of the covenant. Those who have never submitted to the Lord Jesus, those who have never been baptized, those who are outside of the body of Christ, who have no interest in being a part of it. So it's very clear who is within the covenant, who is without the covenant. But then we also have a category 
of those who were once a member of the covenant, but proved themselves not to be genuine believers. They, they showed themselves to be fruitless branches who were pruned, cut off, and separated from the tree, as Jesus talks about in John 15. So, so does the fact, does the existence of apostates negate all the positive things that the Bible has to say about baptism and what it accomplishes? Well, no, it doesn't negate anything, but it does make their falling away more tragic. It means they fell away from something, not nothing. It means that they fell away, they left real blessing. They were exposed to the truth. They were among the company of the elect. They had joy with us and they wept with us and they ate with us and they drank with us and they went through all the seasons of life with us as God's people and then they rejected all of that and abandoned it and now they're outside the household of faith. Um, and they were among the company of the elect and they despised that blessing. Did their baptism do anything? Well, their baptism put them into a covenantal relationship to the church and to Christ, and their falling away means that they have a greater condemnation. Where are you getting this? Well, there are two examples that the New Testament gives, two New Testament illustrations drawn from Old Testament watery events that the writers of the New Testament call baptisms. There is the flood, from 1 Peter 3, Peter calls that a baptism. And there's the Red Sea crossing in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul calls that a baptism. So let's think about the flood for just a second. Was it possible to be saved through the flood, to be on the ark, to be delivered from the waters of judgment? Was it possible to be truly delivered from destruction, to be in union with God's covenant people, and then on the other side of the flood, to fall away and be cursed. Was it possible? Absolutely. That's what happened to Ham. That's precisely what happened in Ham's story. Think about the other event that, that the New Testament calls a baptism, the uh, Red Sea crossing. Was it possible to be delivered from slavery in Egypt, to be protected from Pharaoh's army, to be carried through the Red Sea, and then to die as an idolater in the wilderness? Yes, that's exactly what happened. And uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 10. If you're following along and you want to read this with me, I'm just going to read a chunk from 1 Corinthians 10 because Paul unpacks this, and I think he answers all of our questions here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Okay, well, that's just Old Testament stuff and the world doesn't work that way anymore and it's really just uh, for Sunday school stories and it's not, it's not really relevant. No, no, Paul says, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. 
nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So what does Paul say there? He says this whole company, this whole uh, this whole people, this people who were delivered from Egypt, they were baptized into Moses in the cloud, in the sea. They were united with the redeemed people. They drank the spiritual drink. They followed the rock who, rock who was Christ and then died in the wilderness as idolaters. That doesn't mean that they didn't really get delivered from Egypt or they didn't really drink the spiritual drink. No, they did. And in their rebellion, they received the greater condemnation. And by the way, in both situations about the flood and the Red Sea, the water of blessing, the water of deliverance for the saints was the water of judgment and condemnation for the unbelieving. God always, always, always accomplishes his purposes in water. And that includes the water of baptism. If you are baptized and you don't respond to God's promises by faith, that water is condemnation to you, just as much as it was for Pharaoh's army, just as it was that generation that died in the flood. God always accomplishes his purposes in the water. So is it possible to be baptized, to receive the blessings of being in the covenant, and then to not persevere in the faith? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's why there's so many warnings against unbelief and why so many exhortations toward repentance and trust in the Bible. In 2 Corinthians 6.1, Paul says, I plead with you to not receive the grace of God in vain. In Hebrews 3.12, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That departing, that hardening, that receiving the grace of God in vain, those are not hypotheticals. That is a description of what happens when somebody abandons the faith which we have all seen. Whenever we talk about the possibility of apostasy, though, I, I know that it raises there are some tender consciences that you, you have these uneasy thoughts in your minds. Could, could that be me? Could I fall away? If a baptized person can receive all these blessings but still abandon the faith, does that mean I'm on shaky ground? Do I have reason to doubt? Well, let's use a couple of examples. If, if you knew a fellow American, maybe someone you grew up with, if you heard that they had renounced their citizenship and joined ISIS, would you be concerned about your standing with regard to your citizenship? Would that worry you? Would you be worried that maybe tomorrow you might wake up and think, I don't know, maybe ISIS has some pretty good ideas. Maybe I'll join them. Maybe I'll also demit my citizenship. Is that how you would think? Is that, would, you, would you doubt your citizenship in this country? I don't think you would. I think you might recommit yourself, well, maybe, uh, maybe I need to recommit myself to a proper loyalty and a proper understanding of, of God's good benefits and God's good graces to this country. Let me give you another one. What if someone who is married sins against the marriage covenant, they commit adultery and abandon their family? Does their infidelity cast any shade on your marriage, on your marriage vows? Does that now mean, because somebody has abandoned their marriage, does that mean all marriages are now suspect? 
Do you doubt the integrity of your marriage when that happens? Or when you see infidelity, do you resolve yourself even more to be faithful to your marriage covenant and to refresh and renew your marriage vows and to be more committed to your marriage? Um, so you see, we, we don't think about this in, in any other way, and yet we raise all these questions about baptism that don't make any sense in any other relationship in life. You have nothing to worry about if you are trusting and if you are bearing good fruit. If you're ashamed and sorry when you sin and you confess your sins and you delight in God's law, you are persevering in the faith. If you're not trusting, if you're not producing good fruit, if your heart is hardened, then you must humble your heart. You must confess your sins. You must trust and obey. I've heard many times that, though, that these, these calls, this, this call to trust and obey this way, it eliminates any sense of security that we have in our salvation. But does Paul do violence to our assurance of salvation when Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? When Hebrews 3 says, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God? No, no. It, it, saving faith is always a living faith. Saving faith is always one that responds to God's free gift of salvation in Christ with a faith that works through love. And that's a phrase that Paul uses in Galatians 5, 6. It's, it's always a faith that responds to God's free gift of salvation with a living, active response. We, we persevere in the faith. We actively persevere in the faith. We don't just ride as a jellyfish on the waves of the ocean uh, to, uh, to eternity. Uh, but, but we persevere in in a, a, a faith that is active and, and living. Saving faith is a living faith. And so I think we just overcomplicate things theological that are pretty simple, that we get ourselves wrapped around systematic categories instead of hearing the plain call of the scriptures to trust and obey. Just trust and obey in all things. So let me tie a bow on this question of apostasy and baptism and the issues raised here. Speaking as a committed Calvinist, I can say with all confidence that God has elected an innumerable uh, multitude to glory. From the foundation of the world, God has elected his people to glory. And I believe that is a, a vast, innumerable multitude that no one can ever number. Only God himself can number it. Also, also, for his own glory and purposes, God has left a minority, historically speaking, in the end, in eternity, we'll look back and see this minuscule minority compared to the overwhelming number of the elect, we'll see this minuscule minority who God has allowed to exercise their free will and to reject him. So, so we have those, the, the elect and the minuscule company of the non-elect, and then and then there are also, for God's purposes and in his wisdom, there are those who he permits to pass through the church, who pass through the orbit of the church, who are baptized, spend time with the company of the elect, but end up outside the church. Like, like Judas. Did Judas have a relationship to the Lord Jesus? Uh, did, was Judas baptized? Did, did Judas maybe even work miracles? Do you think Judas is in heaven today? I, have, I don't think so. King Saul was filled with the Spirit and he prophesied. 
Um, do you think, reading about the end of his life, that King Saul ever repented, that he ever uh, was restored to fellowship with God? I don't, I don't think he was. I don't think, he, uh, I don't think he's in heaven today. Uh, so there are examples in the scriptures of people who pass through the covenant, who pass through the company of elect, but who end up outside of it tragically, and they have rejected the the overwhelming grace and the overwhelming provision that God has given them. But they do not negate the promises of the covenant toward us. That doesn't nullify any of God's good gifts or any of his promises toward us. Let me just take one minute or two to talk about the proper recipients of baptism. Of course, uh, adult converts must be uh, baptized, and we all uh, accept that and understand that. But what about children? Um, every time we baptize a child, I remind you of why we do what we do and why, why we're doing this. But it's just a quick refresher, since we're talking about baptism right now. Why baptize babies? Why do we do this? Well, it's because God has always dealt with mankind through covenants. God has made arrangements with man where there are blessings, there are duties, there are warnings, and there are always signs of the covenant. There's always a sacramental seal of the covenant. So the trees in the Garden of Eden, the rainbow in Noah's day, uh, the circumcision was a, a sign of the covenant. And throughout all of God's covenants with man, he has never one time, never one time left the children of covenant members outside of his promises. He's never done that. In fact, he deliberately names the children of the faithful, he names the children as the future recipients of his promises. He says, these promises are to you and to your children. These promises are to you and to the generations after you. These promises are to you and, and to your children, even to the thousandth generation. He says this over and over and over. This is how God trains his people to think about him. I want you to know that I am your God and your children's God. And so when you get to the new covenant, God does not change course. He doesn't do something different there. Jesus says, suffer the little children to come to me. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, says, repent and be baptized, for this promise is to you and to your children. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, your children are holy. So when converts came into the church in the book of Acts, entire households were baptized into the covenant. Everybody's baptized because the promises are to you and to your children. Now, if you, if you look at it and you think, well, well, what would have had to change there? What, what would have been the effect if, in fact, uh, now, after all of this history of including children in the covenant, now, in the new covenant, it's all about individuals, what would, what would have had to change in the New Testament? Well, there's a great deal of controversy in the New Testament about how to incorporate Gentiles. The churches are trying to figure this out. How do we, how do we eat together with Gentiles? How do we... Are the dietary laws still in effect? And, and oh, what, what about circumcision? Is that still necessary? All of these things are the subjects of the letters that Paul writes the churches in dealing with this transition from the old to the new covenant. What kind of controversy would there have been if all of a sudden children were no longer viewed as part of the covenant? How much ink do you think Paul would have had to spill? How many more Pauline epistles would we have if he had to explain to moms and dads, now I know why you're thinking the way you're thinking because God has always done this. God has always included babies in the covenant. He's always included your children, but I have to break it to you and I'm really sorry about this, but now the new covenant 
is purely individualistic. Uh, how many how many letters would Paul have to write to clear all that up? I mean, we'd be up to like fourth Ephesians, and we'd probably have third Romans before all of that got that got cleared up. No, God's promises remain to us and to our children, to us and to our children. I'd, I'd like to close with just one final thought here on what baptisms, our baptisms, mean to us as believers. I read uh, Galatians 3 at the very beginning. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Child of God, you have been clothed with Christ. Just as the old covenant priest at his ordination was washed with water, was anointed with oil, was clothed in a white robe, so you have been washed with water. You have been anointed with the Holy Spirit. You have been clothed in the robe of Christ's righteousness. I mean, you're a priest. You're a priest, and that doesn't just mean you can read the scriptures for yourself. It does. It doesn't mean just that you can pray without an intercessor. You can and must and should. You are a priest, but priests also have other duties. Priests lead other people in right worship before God. Priests are experts in God's law so that they can teach others what please God. Priests keep themselves from corruption Priests are separated to God. Priests wear the uniform that God gave them. They don't go around in the costume of the heathen and the idolater. Uh, priests are identifiable as faithful office holders. That's you. That's you if you are baptized, and that is an objective reality. It's not a question that's tied to how you feel about it. It doesn't fluctuate with your emotions. You are and have been ordained as a priest. You have been clothed. You have been invested. You have been robed in Christ and in his righteousness. In Calvin's catechism, Calvin asks, how do you know yourself to be a son of God, in fact, as well as in name? How do you know? How do you know you're a son of God? And is the answer, well, um, I had this experience, or well, I've got this feeling. No, what is the answer? How do you know yourself to be a son of God? The answer, because I am baptized in the name of God the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Our baptisms are to us an objective and concrete reminder of who we are. At one point in your life, at a specific place and time, you had water poured on you in the name of the Trinity under the authority of the church. And God effectively performed his purposes through your baptism. That should give you a great deal of assurance and comfort. Again, our feelings and our affections are always fluctuating, but your relationship to the Lord Jesus does not depend upon your feelings. Your standing in Christ is not subjective. It is an undeniable objective reality that if you have been baptized, you have the name of Christ placed on you. And because you have his name on you, you are responsible to obey him and to trust in him, to confess of your sins, and to persevere in the faith. So look to your baptism, trust, and obey. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to all of us, and we thank you for bringing us into covenant, into a relationship with each other and with your son Jesus in the name of the Trinity. So give us your spirit that we might persevere to eternal life and give us this, this strength to obey and uphold us all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.